Welcome to The Map Room, your guide to navigating the challenges of business ownership. A podcast about how to take the right steps when the going is hard. Join Paul Barnes, Stuart Brown and special guests as they discuss the difficult truths and tough situations that business owners face and dare to take on. Brought to you by Map. Hello and welcome back into The Map Room the podcast where we try and make sense of our choice to lead an entrepreneurial lifestyle and what that means for our business, our people, and also us as the business owner. Now, for those of you who regularly listen to The Map Room, you will know that in addition to saying fascinating and you know, you know, in far too many sentences, uh, I often try to use sporting analogies or stories to certainly help myself understand issues more clearly and hopefully communicate them better to you, our much appreciated audience. Well, today I can say we are literally all in. Sharing the map table with me today is the man who put prof into professional sport, the brilliant Professor Damien Hughes. Damien is the best-selling author of books such as Liquid Thinking, Liquid Leadership, and the one that I really want to go into some detail about today, The Winning Mindset, What Sport Can Teach Us About Great Leadership. But for those of you who have seen the show notes, you could be forgiven for knowing Damien and his other job, as co-host of the awesome and incredibly successful High Performance Podcast. So, Damien, thanks for giving us your time today for our listeners and welcome to The Map Room. It's a privilege to be asked, Stuart, so thank you for having me. I'm really looking forward to our chat. So, The Winning Mindset is what I want to talk about and that specific book I want to talk about, but I have to start and put on record congratulations on the High Performance Podcast. I think what yourself and Jake have done there is is genuinely phenomenal. Um, I'm going to be honest and say it's the podcast that I listen to the most, the single one that I listen to the most. Uh, And I've never known a podcast spoken about by so many people. And I'm going to say audiences there when I meet them. So whether it's people, whether it's sports fans, I'm, I'm a rugby fan, so whether it's rugby fans like me or other sports fans or, you know, virtually every entrepreneur, every business owner I speak to asks me, have I found it, have I listened to it? And even my niece, who is a um, rowing uh, student at Princeton, uh, got one of your books this year for Christmas and <laughs> even she's talking to me about it. So on the record, and I mean, what you're doing is fantastic, so well done on that. Well, well, thank you. And that's incredibly kind to pass on that. Um, I'm, I'm really humbled that I've, I'm, I'm sure it's like for you doing your podcast here. I think when anyone gives you uh, an hour of their time to listen, especially in our busy, frenetic lives, it's it's not something I take lightly. I appreciate the investment. So thank you. I really appreciate you sharing that and for listening to it. Oh, it's fantastic. The one that always comes to mind and we'll move on is um, I was trying to do the walking as people did, you know, after lockdown stuff and uh, Molly Meatball McCann. Oh my God. Oh yeah. I literally was walking along thinking, I hope nobody's looking at me now because the tears were flowing down my oh. my uh, cheeks. Just Again, I think it's we'll come back to storytelling in this, but it's the stories that you get behind the people that you think you know, particularly with sports. We're all guilty of thinking it's a Saturday job, aren't we, or whatever the, the thing they do. But, yeah, Molly Meatball McCann was just outstanding. Oh, yeah, she was brilliant. Yeah, yeah, I, I mean, coming from such difficult circumstances like she did in Liverpool 4 and then 
sort of scaling the heights as she has done. It's it's the journey, definitely not the destination. And that again is 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 part of what we did with this podcast. It was about saying, you know, it's the map room. It's about a journey. It's your entrepreneurial life, your entrepreneurial journey, and setting out a strategy against which you can bring back objectives back to a map. And that's where we came from. So. I suppose I should open by asking the question, which is, what is a winning mindset? Or I suppose I should say, more specifically, how would you define a winning mindset? Well, that's a really good question. I think, I think I'd probably resort to an answer that um, I stole shamelessly from uh, a chat I had with uh, Phil Neville. And um, I was talking to Phil about this, uh, but uh, it was around, um, it was in his hotel that he owns opposite Manchester United's ground and um it was you can see that out the window yeah and it was just after it, it was when we were coming out of COVID and I was having a cup of tea with him and I don't know if you remember he'd he'd opened the hotel um free of charge yes. for NHS yes. workers at the time and he'd said if you need any respite just come and stay in the hotel so I was having the chat with Phil around this and I was complimenting him on his decision and he gave me this great line. He just threw it away casually. He said, well, he said, in life, I think you've just got to do the best you can with what you've got in the moment you're in. Wow. And I went, what? And he said, do the best you can with the, what you've got in the moment you're in is, is what life's about. And I went, Phil, just go back. And I scribbled down what it said. And the reason I'd, I've sort of stolen that, um, that definition, Sue, is because I think a winning mindset is about doing the best that you're capable of at the time that you're in with the resources you have. And the reason I think that's important is because it's not a set of definitions that anyone can tell you, you have to do this and therefore you have a winning mindset. It's about, because my resources might be different than yours. Yeah. The time I am is different than yours. What I'm capable of is different than what you are. So there's no point getting into this comparison culture of thinking mm. that it has to be, that it has to be a defined set of standards. It's about you answering mm. that question. And that's always going to be subjective. So a winning mindset is about putting yourself in a position to do the best you can in the moment you're in with the resources that you have. Uh, that is that is fascinating. I've said it again. You see, there we go. Fascinating. Um, but I think the thing that really resonates for me there, Damien, is the point about in the moment that you have. I think we're all guilty. I talk to a lot of business owners about strategy and I say to them, you know, strategy is only apparent today. You can have the best plan in the world, but it's that, can you do it at the moment? And I know, hence the reason I use sport analogies, when you, when you can perform at the moment, really. So I suppose lot, lots of listeners will be asking the question, which is, well, okay, I, I get what you're saying, but how do you create, as the business owner, how do I create or how do I build a winning mindset in myself and in my team? Um, but I suppose psychologists and you know, learned minds, yourself, have written a lot on this. And we could sit here and theorise all day, but at the outset of our podcast, we've always said that the map room is about specialists, about experts, about experience. It's not theorists. And we do want yeah. to give our listeners practical and actionable steps. So no pun intended, that's a great segue into bringing me into this conversation, which is you developed, within, within your book, you developed um, five principles of creating a winning mindset using the acronym STEPS. So I'd love to really understand where did that come from, how did it develop, etc. Yeah, so I, I, I've spent a lifetime, so I grew up in a boxing gym in, uh, in a city, Manchester. So that was my background. 
of um, being around high performance and a winning mindset from as far back as I can remember, Stuart. So my dad was a boxing coach and he was nurturing young young men off the streets and taking some of them to Olympic gold medals. Some of them went on to become world professional champions, but a lot of them just went on to become successful in lots of other mm. disciplines as parents, partners and other professions. So I was around this mindset from a, from as far back as I can remember. And I, again, without using a pun, I had a ringside seat to it. So as I went, as I sort of went down my own career path, I, 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 I went into academia for, for a while. And there's a great phrase you use there where they say, we don't do research. We tend to do me search yeah. where we try and understand the world that we've grown up in and make sense of it. So that was how I got an invitation to go around the world, going into elite sports environments, meeting elite coaches and talking and observing them to say, when success happens, when the outcome of success takes place, what are the first principles? What are the practices and the processes that are consistently applied that nobody sees yeah. that leads to success? So what I did was, I mean, part of my the work that I do had led me to do this a long time before it, but I specifically traveled the world for three years, going into these environments and meeting them. And then what I was looking for were these patterns that were consistently applied. So it didn't matter what the sport was, what the discipline was, what the culture was. It was around what were the consistent patterns that I found. And I found five things that tended to universally be present. So like you say, I, I, I use that acronym STEPS to help people remember it. But what I'd say is that if people, if they're not achieving the outcome they want, before they start to go, oh, it's the market, it's the climate, it's the customers, go back and just remember that simple acronym steps and go through it because there's five questions that it poses to you to ask you, where do you need to maybe sharpen your own focus before you start to externalise it and, uh, and look outside of yourself? Fascinating. Um, we'll, we will go into the details, but just again, for people who don't, don't know it just literally explain the steps yeah so the the s first of all is about there's a relentless focus on simplicity and i'll explain why that's key in a moment but it, it almost sounds obvious because nobody's arguing for the world to be more complex but the ability to simplify things and make it as accessible and simple as possible is a hallmark of a winning mindset the t part is about doing your own thinking and what I mean by that is that not doing the talking, but doing the listening, asking questions, being curious. And, all, and I'll, again, we'll explain, I'm sure, in our chat, why thinking is key. Now, again, everyone goes, well, that's obvious. But just because it's obvious doesn't mean that it's mm. common practice. The E part of it is about emotional intelligence, the ability to understand people and their drivers and their motivations. The P bit is about making the language practical. So like you said, you're not... The, the podcast, The Map Room, isn't about theories. It's about practical nature. So it's about what do I do with this? It's not enough to know it. I need to I need to understand how I can use it. And then the final S of the STEPS acronym is storytelling. That there tends to be, if you want to get someone to remember your message or you want to pass on the culture or get people to walk away and recount what you've just said, stories are the most effective way and again going into these environments i used to drive away and i'd be sort of scribbling down my notes and what i noticed after a while was there was a pattern that i tended to be writing and recounting the stories that had mm. been told me 
and eventually go hang on that's the that's the lesson not necessarily what the story tells you it's the fact that the story is used as the medium to pass on a, a bit of wisdom fascinating so let, let, let's go back and go into some detail if we can because what i want to try and do is a a you know genuinely understand them better for myself and for those people who haven't yet uh, had a chance to get the book and we'll talk about that uh, but also relate it to the audience that we have and potentially their business really so yeah. the first one simplicity that is if i could put something at the top of a list for me damon it would be that Everybody who knows me, um, everyone who works with me, it's family, friends, know that I like black and white. I like yes and no questions. It drives some people mad, but for me, it is that simplicity. It's about, you know, is it a yes, is it a no? I don't want a maybe. I don't want to, you know, I don't, don't tell me what you don't want yeah, to yeah. do. Tell me what you do want to do. So the simplicity one for, for me is matter. But one of the things in that uh, chapter you spoke about, which really made me think was that, you were saying that it's not simplicity for the sake of being simple. It's simplicity to find the key information. So block out the, you know, and you've done a lot you in your book and this other book, you do obviously understand how the brain works and you're talking about the fact that, you know, you can literally drown in, drown in data. Um, what, one of the things that we do, uh, we do in MAP is that we try and present financial information in a simple format, not to make it, not to to simplify it not make it simple and not be disrespectful to it but for those listeners who do and don't understand we you know lots of accountants provide a PL that have or everything in it we do a collapsed PL for that reason if you if you need more than seven lines to explain your numbers you're not you don't understand your business yourself and it is that it is that simplicity i think yeah i, I, I think that point you've said there about about if, if it takes you too long to explain something you don't understand it well enough yourself is a great example of a concept known as the Dunning-Kruger law. So the Dunning-Kruger law is named after two guys called Justin uh, uh, Kruger and David Dunning, two professors at, at Cornell University. And what they said is, if you're good at something, you understand why you're good at it and can explain it. But on the flip side, if you're stupid, you're too stupid to know that you're stupid. <laughs> So a really good example of it is like, when you go to a sports event, right, and somebody sits in the stands, and they've not worked up a sweat in 20 years, yeah. but they're declaring that he's no good. Yeah. I'd do a better job yeah. than him. That's an example of the Dunning-Kruger law in a really sort of uh, innocent way because you don't understand how hard the athlete has worked or what they're trying to achieve. So in the stands, you think it's simple, but you don't understand the complexities of what they're doing. But when you hear somebody that has... So this is why someone like Gary Neville is very popular yeah, on the telly because yeah. he's actually done it, but then he's able to explain to people like us watching the telly what the athletes out there are trying to do. So that's a good example of someone that is good at what they do and they're able to explain why they're good at it. So you're right that it's not simple for like for dumbing it down or assuming that people are stupid. It's the opposite. It's about making sure that you understand enough about the detail that you can just give people the yeah. most important information and say, that's what you really need to know here. This is where your energy is going to be best invested. So this is what you'll see time and time again. That So I, I start the book by recounting a story that, so I said to you, I grew up in a boxing gym and I used to go and carry the spit bucket for my dad and uh, big fights. And where I, I the, the art of simplicity came in was, 
I remember once being in the corner of a world title fight, a world super middleweight title fight in San Remo in Italy. And I'm carrying the spit bucket and the fight's going great. I know what the game plan is. It's being executed and it's going according to plan. And I, I used to have to give them the nod in the corner to say, you've got 30 seconds, get ready. But when they get in the corner, they've only got a minute to communicate with a oxygen depleted athlete what, what to do next. And I remember sat there, think, or stood there thinking, what would I say if it was my job to get in that corner now? What would I say? And I remember coming up with a couple of things that I'd probably have done. I'd have gone in and gone, keep doing it, yeah. keep doing what you're doing, game plan's working. I might have just said, don't get overconfident, or I might have cautioned that. But then when I when I sort of carried the spit bucket up to the corner, I, I was fortunate enough to hear my dad. And all he said was was nine words. He said, sit down when you punch. Sit down when you punch. And that was it. Now, that might sound really simple, but it actually contains an awful lot of wisdom yeah. because the whole game plan had been about moving, being on your feet, moving, keep offering lateral moves. And when you sit down when you punch, what that means is, like when yeah. you sit down, you have to yeah. plant both your feet yeah. on the floor. Put your, weight, put your weight through your feet. Yeah, so sit down when you punch was actually saying, stop moving and start standing still. Because he understood that when you stand still, you poke, you throw with more power. And what happened in the next round was the fighter we were working with, he ended up with knocking out his opponent and winning. And on the flight back, I was chatting with my dad and I said to him about what I'd heard and how impressed I was. And I said, why did you come to it? And he said, I'd seen a pattern about two rounds before it that the, the Italian lad that we were fight, who we were fighting against, he had a tendency to carry his hands really high and his hands had started to drop. So that would give him the indication that he was running out of energy. So he said, I didn't want to act too quickly. So I watched it in the second round, it reinforced yeah, it. did a pattern. So now I knew that the game plan needed to, needed to change. But you've only got a minute to communicate yeah. that information. So the confidence to be able to relay it in those words of sit down when you punch was a really great example of how you understand your craft enough to be able to communicate in the most accessible form possible. And I mean, it's borne out by plenty of evidence on this, Stu, that's worth your listeners maybe paying attention to that what we know is that that we're constantly being bombarded by information all the time. Our phones yep. and technology makes it that we're constantly on the receiving end of so much data and information. So it's estimated that in an average working hour of a day, you get interrupted 37 times during a, an average 60-minute day. Jeez. Whether that's a phone call, yeah. an email, yeah. a text message, um, a social media post. 37 times in an average 60-minute day. Now, you might go, so what? Well, that's so what does an awful lot of heavy lifting. What we know is that you you it takes you another 22 minutes after you picked up that message to get your attention back to where it was before you were distracted. It means that your IQ level diminishes on average by between 15 and 20 points. It, so you start so effectively smart technology makes us stupid. So the fact that we're all on the receiving end of this means that those that can communicate really simply and get their message across in the most direct form possible, distinguishes themselves already that they get heard and understood. 
I made that note when when I when I read the book. It was, a, I think you said it was it was a Microsoft, if I recall, right? That did that research that said you know just an email takes you twenty two minutes to go back to your task focus, which we're yeah. all guilty of allowing these notifications in corners of screens, aren't we? To to go off. Have you thought? I wonder whether um, obviously we've come through a period and. With you know, with COVID and the pandemic, where there was remote working, and there's there's a battle going on now with, um, you know, if any vote will tell you that you know employees naturally are preferring to work remote or a kind of hybrid. No one wants to be commuting again. No one wants to be back in office yeah. nine to five. And there's a lot of employers who are saying no, no, no. And whether that's a control mechanism, and um, we can talk about that later. But I can't help thinking when. I read this um, chapter that if all that's going on, therefore you would assume is some evidence that says when you see all these things about productivity remote, probably could be accurate because there's probably, might not be, you know, there might be, you know, kids, animals, etc. but there might be less distractions for your brain. You're not realising how many of those distractions are going on in a busy office. Have you come across that since we got back to remote work and have you got any views on that? Yeah, so I mean, I, I when I work with sort of organisations, it's a common topic of debate and one of the, so one of the quotes I like to I like to sort of throw at leaders that are interested in this is it's it, it it's attributed to Jeff Bezos. Now Jeff Bezos, uh, 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 the guy behind Amazon, has this line that he says: when people ask him what's going to change in the next ten years, he said, "What's far more helpful to do is discuss what's going to stay the same." So when we're talking about hybrid working yeah. and whether we're going to let people work from home or, or how we interact with them in the office, rather than worry about what's going to happen. The question is, what do people still need? Even when they're working in the office, what are the factors that people will still require? And if you look at it as humans, we're not going to evolve very much, however we're working at home <laughs> no. or, or, or whether no. in the office. So we're still going to need to feel that we've got a sense of purpose. We're still going to need to feel that what we're doing matters and that we have value to offer. We still want to feel psychologically safe that if we make a mistake, we're not going to be hung out to dry. And above all, we also need to feel that we have a sense of autonomy and control and influence over what we do. So what I'd encourage any employer that's wrestling with this debate to do is to say, how do I offer those factors? Because those factors are essential for any of your staff or your team to go and thrive and do their best, most productive work. So whether it's at home or at work, how do you give them safety? How do you give them control? How do you give them a sense of value? And how do you give them this sense of belonging and a sense of purpose, wherever it is that they work in? Mm, re really interesting. The The last bit I wanted to sort of, well, two li little bits I want to discover before we move on from simplicity was, the. do you have a view on niche? So for me, the, the benefit of, so I, I'm a fan of businesses that operate in a niche sector. So our own business, we only um look after not only but we prioritize and specialize in digital uh businesses digital agencies yeah. and we have evidence we can see through the numbers that those clients of ours that specialize in one thing rather than doing everything uh tend to have um a better outcome does simplicity in operating in a niche have 
have a have a have, have a logic or am I thinking wrong? No, no, I think you're absolutely right. I think I think if you stand for something, you, there's lots of things that you don't stand for as well. So to say yes to something requires you to say no to something else. And I think to be really quite deliberate and purposeful about this is what we do and this is what we're excellent at, but this is what we also don't do. So don't come to us for that. I think what that does is it cuts through the noise for a lot of people. Mm. I think ambig- I sometimes use this phrase to that I think ambiguity is the real enemy of high performance of, well, I'm all right at that and I can do that or I'm not sure. It, it, it creates uncertainty. I'm stealing that one now, like I can tell you that, right? Yeah, but... <laughs> I'm but, writing that down. But yeah. our brains loathe uncertainty. So when I'm saying I'm, I can do a few things... So if you look at, like, the Jim Collins work, of what he, I think he called it the hedgehog effect. So yes, what are you good yeah, at? your hedgehog principle, yeah. The hedgehog principle, what are you good at? You know, what do you enjoy doing? And what drives your economic engine? The answer to those three questions lead you to a simple answer in the in the middle of that Venn diagram. It yeah. says that's where you should be invested. Yeah, most of your time and energy. Yeah, I've, I've, I, I did um, an interview last year with a guy called Dr. Peter Attia, right. and uh, this guy wrote a book called Outlive, and it's basically about how you extend your life to live a healthy, like longer lifestyle. And what he did was he was the originator with a journalist called Dan Bootner of going into parts of the world called the blue zones, where life expectancy is a lot higher than the average. And what they were looking at was, well, what what is it that enables people to live longer lives in these communities? Is it diet? Is it lifestyle? Is it climate? And the environments that they went to were so diverse, you couldn't just pin it on one particular factor like diet or lifestyle. But what they found in all the communities was there was a consistent set of questions that people were asking themselves. And in the Japanese community that they visited where life expectancy exceeds it, they call it ikigai. And ikigai translates as what do you get so what gets you out of bed in the morning? Yeah. And what they found is that ikigai, which if you want to relate it to a business, is like what's your purpose? Yeah. It's basically around four questions. Four questions is what are you really good at? What do you enjoy doing? Yeah. How does this serve other people? And how can you make it make money from it yeah and what they say is that if you invest your time in answering those four questions somewhere in the middle of that analysis you discover what what drives you what gets you up in the morning yeah and the reality is that'll tend to be quite a simple answer and then that's where you structure the rest of your life yeah around those four questions and i think they're four decent questions that businesses can apply as much as individuals I mean, Jim Collins suggests that yeah. by investing your time in that simple core of what you do, yeah. businesses that do tend to be about six times more profitable. Yeah, absolutely. Right, absolutely. Um, let's move on to the second one then, thinking. And yeah. it's it's something, when you've said that, and I can I can listen now, listen in my mind's eye, that's a strange thing to say. <laughs> you care what I'm trying to say. Yeah, so yeah. when I listen to yourself and Jake, Jake naturally talks that's his experience that's his skill set and i always think when i listen to the podcasts suddenly and obviously i tend to listen to it rather than watch it i know you're available on on the youtube as well now but i suddenly hear a dynamite question come out from you and that makes me think that that, then when i've watched some you can see you are literally thinking and you're probably reflecting on something that was said three minutes ago while jake's (laughs) bombarding and you come out with that so 
I think that's probably, as you say, a very under under recognized, very underutilized skill set. And the, the question that that interested me when um, you know in on that chapter was how do you get our audience to pay attention to our ideas? Because not only is that crucial to most of our clients, but it's crucial yeah. to their business because they're in creative agencies. They're in you know they are selling ideas very often to a client. So. And today there's lots of technology that can, you know, for every pound you spend on this, we can measure that. But ultimately, how we get our audience to pay attention to ideas, to use again an old phrase, is this, must be the $64 million question. Yeah, yeah. And it's a great question. So thank you. And thanks for sharing your observations. I think the first thing is that, like, when you say to somebody, you, oh, you want to get people thinking, you go, uh, that's obvious. Everybody's thinking. You say, well, actually, not. So we developed this concept. There's a concept in psychology that's referred to as a heuristic. And the easiest way of understanding that is think of it like a mental model or a rule of thumb that you use, where we have lots of heuristics that navigate how we do something. So if you take a really simple example, Sue, like think about your visit to any posh coffee shop, right? Yeah. It's on every high street in the yeah, UK. Yeah, yeah. And you think about the amount of decisions that come your way. You go... So you go in there, you can't say, can I have a coffee? They'll say, well, what type of, what size cup do you want? What type of coffee bean would you like? What style do you want the coffee in? Do you want milk yep. with it? Is it yep. skim, semi, almond, yep. soya, full fat, yep. maybe none at all, syrup, sugar, yep. sweetness. So all those decisions yep. come at you, right? And then you just go, I'll just have a latte, please, a medium latte. Yeah. So what you've done is you, you're not thinking, you're not answering all those questions. You're just using a mental model that says, I ordered a latte last time and that was all yeah. right. So I'm now going to assume that that's a fairly safe bet. Yeah. So you don't think when you're in that coffee shop, you're using yeah. these heuristics to almost get to navigate your way through and you're doing it on autopilot. So we do this in so many aspects of our lives that we just get stuck on autopilot. We scroll through on our phones and we're not thinking about what we're seeing. We're just scrolling through. It's an autopilot response. So this is a lot more common than you might imagine. So when I was going into these environments and exploring it, this was the quietest skill because it's almost you're looking for the absence mm. rather than the presence of something. But there's some really important lessons that we can all take away from it. So what I noticed was the coaches and the leaders within these environments didn't obsess about having the right answers. What they did obsess about was creating a culture where all the right questions could be asked. And what I mean by that is that that that. I hear this lots of times, and you've just referenced it from people that talk about it in business. They'll go, oh, I find it really frustrating trying to engage with my staff or customers or clients. And you go, why? And you go, well, we do Q&A sessions and nobody asks us a question. Yeah, or always. We do, or, or we do surveys or suggestion mm. schemes, and we don't tend to get much back. Now, my answer to those leaders has been the same that I'd say to anyone listening to this that would say the same message. I'd say, that silence should be deafening you. The silence you're getting is feedback. They're giving you feedback. Saying nothing is also feedback. And it's not that they're not listening. The feedback tends to be there, I think, in sports environments and I think in businesses. If if you're asking questions and nobody's offering you a response, they're telling you they either don't trust you, to, that you, I don't trust you with the answer, I don't trust yeah. that you're going to do anything with you, or they don't feel safe, psychologically safe in the environment to give you that feedback. So whatever's going on in the culture you've created, people don't feel safe enough to speak up and to speak their mind. And either of those two factors is terminal for high performance. 
because people will get stuck then in old patterns of behaviour. So, so when you think about it, with Eddie Jones, the England, uh, the former England rugby yeah. union coach, now head of coach of Japan, gave us a great answer to this when we interviewed him. He said, nothing you ever do is neutral. Everything you do either enhances or erodes trust in your team. So when somebody asks you a question, how you respond to that either creates a, a safe concept, a safe environment where people go, oh, I'll, I'll ask a question. Or they think, oh, no, I'm not asking the question. So everything you do either enhances or erodes that relationship of safety and trust. So if when, so when, like I see this a lot, you know, like in sport where people use the term banter. Oh, it's great banter yeah. in the dressing room. Yeah. And I go, well, ba well, that depends. I make a distinction between banter and humour. Humour is inclusive where we all feel safe enough to joke. Banter often relies on excluding somebody for that joke to exist. Let's take the piss out of you. Let's laugh at you. So again, no act is neutral. It, does that create safety or and trust if I'm taking the piss out of you to get a laugh? Well, the answer is no, it doesn't. But for everyone else there, you reduce the likelihood of them actually speaking up or doing anything unique. So this was what I was seeing so often in these coaches that they, they'd, they'd go in and they'd ask questions of people. What do you think here? This is what I'm suggesting. What's your view of it? And they were comfortable with the discomfort of silence yeah. until eventually people would speak up. And then when they spoke up, no act they ever did then was neutral. So they would treat, there was no stupid questions. Every question was treated with respect and courtesy. And what that tended to happen is when people saw that it was safe and they were trusted mm. enough, they would trust you to then offer their mm. view. And that was where collectively you started to see teams and organisations become so much smarter, so much quicker, because they were actually updating their thinking rather than just relying on old patterns of behaviour. So it's quite a simple idea, but it's not necessarily easy to execute. Mm. But what, because it requires us to, first of all, be comfortable with the discomfort of not getting any answers. But then it also requires us to go at the pace of the group that we're asking the questions of, because that's where real thinking starts to happen. You talk, you talk there about uh, courage as well, and you put that in that section. Um, and, you know, one of our uh, map values is be brave. And I don't know whether in this issue, brave and courage is the same thing. Are you saying there it's about, in that instance, the courage of the leader to be prepared to put himself out and, and not, if you like, demand the answers? Or is it about the courage of the thinker to be confident enough to ask the question? Or is it a mixture? It's a great, it, it, so it's a great point. And I'd say the answer is a bit of both. So... There's really interesting research on this issue that, that, that is attributed to the work of an organisational psychologist called Amy Edmondson. And back in the early 1990s, when she was doing her PhD, she went into hospitals in the sort of Boston and the Harvard area. And what she was looking at were what were the best hospitals and what were the worst performing hospitals. And when we talk about best and worst, in this case, we're literally talking life and death, you know, recovery rates, expected... Uh, return from illness and injury and things like that. And what she found didn't make sense. The hospitals that had the best outcomes of patients recovering and getting better faster also tended to be the hospitals that had the highest number of cock-ups and near misses and, and accident rates. 
the hospitals that had the worst outcomes where people tended yeah. to be sicker longer also had the least number yeah. of cock-ups and errors. So when she looked at the data, she was like, this doesn't add up. So which is where she then started to pull the thread and explore it. And what she found was the hospitals that had the best outcomes, they had a culture where people felt safe enough. So when they made a mistake, they went, you know what, I've made an error here. And they were they felt safe enough that they weren't going to get mm. ridiculed or sacked mm. or disciplined. Mm. So for the leader, there was a courage there that when somebody made a mistake, you don't just scream and shout at them. You take a moment to listen to them. And for the person that puts her hand up to admit the mistake, the courage there is that they're owning the error and they're being accountable for it. But what they found is in organisations where this psychological safety happened, learning took place so much faster because when a mistake happened and somebody's going, I've made a mistake here, this is what I did wrong and this is what we need to do to yeah. correct it, everybody gets smarter instantly. Whereas if you've got a culture where when a mistake happens, somebody goes, it wasn't me, you cocked up there, I don't know anything about it. You can't learn anything from it. You've got to then go and explore it and go and investigate it before any learning can take place. So psychological safety was... Um, one of the factors, there was a, a, a meta study, like a big grand study done of thousands of teams by Google years ago called Project Aristotle, where they looked at high-performing teams for a formula, and they couldn't find a formula. But what they found was that if teams don't feel psychologically safe, you can't achieve their potential. It, it's funny, it's, it, and again, I bring it back to the, the sport, and, and it's happening, and it's probably more recent, but... I remember having this conversation. So I took um, rugby players from six through to to eighteen, right. and it was that classic thing where you've got you know some parents are very supportive, some parents are very constructive. Go back to your point of everything has a consequence. You're either adding to the trust or taking away, yeah. and there'll be points where you know kids would make mistakes. They drop the ball. They do the whatever, and. We used to put this culture in that, you, and and you see it now, and they see it on the TV. So that matters that when there's a mistake. The team go over and spend almost as much time, um, I don't know the word, um, consoling that person, do congratulating, they're tapping them on the back, they're doing whatever. I go back to teams I you know, played in and was part of in business. Yeah, yeah. It, and, it, and it would have been, someone would have been screaming. And, and there are times, Damien, when I would have been the person screaming and that, that makes me realise that I was not the best leader or the best team member at that point. But we see it now, that point of, as you're saying, it is just that thing that says, do you know what? They won't be sweating for the next 15 minutes on that error. They'll forget about it and move on. But Well, I mean, that's where, so when I work with sports teams, like some people say, well, what do you do? And I'll give you a really simple example of it. So it might look at how do you create high-performing culture. So when I'll go and watch, say, a rugby team practicing, and they might be doing uh, catching the ball from a kick, a high pressure. And when I watch a player, say, drop the ball that when he's under pressure, I'm not interested in why he dropped the ball. And I'm not interested because there are coaches that are better qualified than me that can work with them and tell them it was where they were feet were positioned or the way their hands were shaped. So they'll give them the technical aspects of why they dropped the ball. What I'm switched on and interested in is what happens amongst his teammates when he drops the ball. Mm. Because you think about it. If, I, if I've dropped the ball, everyone knows I've dropped the ball, right? It's obvious. But how I respond as a teammate is key. So if I start shouting at you, what are you fucking drop the ball for, you idiot? 
that doesn't help me. No. If I just ignore you because you've dropped the ball, that doesn't help me either. No. If somebody goes and goes, come on, you'll get it next time. You're better than that. Come on, you'll be all right. Head up. Well, let's, let's move on. That does help me if I've dropped the ball because I don't feel that I'm being ostracized or isolated yeah. from making a mistake. So I can learn so much faster. So you can see it in lots of different aspects that creating an environment where people feel psychologically safe allows them to think. And when they think, they instantly become smarter. Wow. Yeah. Proper, proper link to it. Um, one of the things I want to talk about, because you, you put it in that part of, um, of thinking is um, the classic thing that we see a lot in, see, see it more in small businesses than yeah. the big business. And the, and the bit we're in looks, looks at small businesses is where the, the classic phrase, best players don't always make the best managers. And we tend to see lots of people who will promote their frontline people so they've got a great in the industry we represent they might have a great client services director they have somebody that is the the client facing um part of their proposition about their business and their view is we're going to grow this therefore we're going to make him the manager i'm going to get people in and you t and, and it doesn't work and you had a phrase in your book called the knowledge trap yeah so explain that to me because that's how i resonated with that i've seen lots of people you know, promote the, the the best performers and wonder then why the team doesn't perform. Yeah, so so the knowledge trap again goes to the idea of if you that the, there's a difference between knowing something and being able to communicate what you know. So it's a bit like that done in Kruger law we spoke earlier about where if you're clever, you know why you're clever. If you're stupid, you don't know why you're stupid. And the knowledge trap says that 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 when you're good at something. The ability to then go and tell somebody why you're good at it and help them be good at it is a different skill set altogether. Yeah. So you might have got natural aptitude, you might have a talent, you might have had somebody that nurtured and mentored you to get you to a level of high competence. But that doesn't mean that you can then, just because you're good at it, means that you can mm -hmm. tell other people about how, how to achieve that level of excellence. So it's sometimes referred to as the Peter principle where people get promoted to their level of incompetence. You know what I mean? So, so you promote somebody because they're good at a certain task and you give them a leadership role, but you don't teach them how to be a leader, how to communicate, yeah. how to create psychological safety and all these factors. You just assume mm. that because they could do the task really well, that they could pass it on. Yeah. They pass it on by osmosis. And it's and it and it's a dangerous error to make that, and that, that's why the point about often great players don't necessarily transfer into great coaches. Yeah. In and we've got lots of numerous examples from a sporting point of view because what came naturally or easy to you yeah. doesn't you can't understand why it wouldn't come as easy or as naturally to others, or you can understand it, but you don't have the means to be able to upskill them and educate them. So, so I, I I see this often that that like communication skills is a, or coaching skills is actually really underrated. So just because so you you see leaders that have to then learn the craft of how do you bring other people with you. That's where you need to be investing time and energy in, not in not in in in, in why you're good at it because you're already good at it. It's about yeah. how do you help other people get to a level of of excellence yeah it, it's key in this in say the sector we look after damien because very often most agencies exist as a vehicle to build a craft 
So very often the principal has a craft and can do something, and then it's trying to move that on. And um, it, I said in, in in a recent episode that some of the fastest growing businesses I get involved in, the CEO or the founder in that instance just gets out of the way for that reason because actually they they they're great at doing something. They're not great at passing it on. Um, l- let's go on to the bit that. Um, uh, you've mentioned Jim Collins there, and or we mentioned Jim Collins earlier. I want to talk about the emotions a bit now. Um, again, in your book, you phrase a question, which is how to get people to care. And again, one of our values is be caring. It's the thing that we, um, I can't say we we measure. We try to measure, but we value probably most in our in our staff really for lots of different reasons. Yeah. And, and that's not what this is about. But if we talk about um, something that we both will uh, lots of people we've read and lots of our listeners will have read Jim Collins and good to great and the, and the concept of getting the right people on the bus is it as simple as good and bad emotions or is it always a mixture of emotions based on what you said before you can't do anything without uh you know without um you know staying quiet has it has it has it hasn't makes its own noise well again it's a really interesting question I think I think what we tend to do is we tend to, a lot of leaders, our instinct is, I, I talk about the three F's of how to get people to come with you. And they tend to use fear, facts, or force. So you use a negative emotion of frightening people. So look at like health advice. It's like, if you don't, if you eat this, you'll get cancer. If you don't do this, you're going to get diabetes. So it's often about frightening people yeah. to, into a certain way of behaving. And what we know is that fear can be a really effective short-term strategy in business where you go, if we don't do this, we're going to be out of business in a year. That might be good to get a little bit of energy in the room, but but it doesn't lead to long, long-term success because once you've run away from the danger or the threat, that that, that same energy falls off, uh, off a cliff. So using the negative emotion of fear can be really dangerous. Using the emotion of force, or not the emotion of force, but using the tactic of force. Do this because I'm the boss. I told you to do it. You need to do this. Again, that leads to short-term compliance when you're in the room, but it's not a long-term strategy. And then the final one is using facts, trying to persuade people using rational facts. So I'm sure you're like me, Stu. You've heard that you should be taking 10,000 steps today. You should yeah. eat five items of fruit and veg. You should drink a litre and a half of water. You know, yeah, all right. Don't ask me. Don't ask me if I've done none of them. Well, that's it. But, but that's the question. You know it. Have you? Have, yeah. you, have you done it? Yeah. For most people, yeah. say no. I probably don't get round to it. But I know what I should be. So you know that those tactics then of fear, facts, or force don't tend to lead to long-term investment of people caring. So what I'd like to use instead is say translate them into three into three different uh, letters. The three R's of relate, reframe, and repeat. So relate is about okay. how how do you tell people that you're interested in them, that you care about them, that you're invested in their success, that you're on their side, that you want them to uh, to thrive. You've got to convince people that you care about them to get them to care about you or about your product. Then the second one is you've got to help them see the world in a different way. Because I care about you, working with me can make a difference to you in terms of what your yeah. success is. That's the reframe bit. And then you have to keep proving it by repeating it over and over again. So I'll give you a really nice anecdotal example that I one of the most fascinating 
people I've ever met was a guy called John McAvoy. Now, John McAvoy grew up in the East End of London when uh, he was part of almost like the criminal uh, royalty, yep. the underworld yep. royalty. So his yep. his uncle had been involved in the Binks Mark Bolt called Bully and Robbery. Yep. Um, but John had lost his father before he was even born. So when he, when he was in his mum's womb, his dad had died. So when he was growing up, he sort of like was at the mercy of a lot of these the, uh, these villains that would cut, take him under his wing. And long story short, he was basically bred to be a, a villain. So he tells the story about he was driving the age of 14 in his uncle's Ferrari, and his uncle was pointing out all these people commuting to work, and he was saying to him, John, these people are mugs. They pay taxes, they live honest lives, and he said they're mugs. He said people like us are different, we're not like them. And he gave him this idea that he was somehow superior. And long story short, John ended up becoming a villain, used to hold up armed, um, armed like armoured vehicles and things like that, uh, and, and, and rob them. And he ended up at the age of 25 being put away on a life sentence in, um, in, 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 in prison. And what happened next is a great example of the three R's. So... Um, he spent the first six years in prison. His cellmate was uh, Abu Hamza, you know, the cleric, yeah. the, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, the cleric, giving an idea of how yeah. serious his John's crimes were. Yeah. He spent the first six years just carrying on being a villain, but living the life yeah. in prison. And then. Belmar, she'd have been then. Eh? HM, HMP Belmar. That's right. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah. Yeah. but in the high security wing there. Yeah. And anyway, long story short. What happened, first of all, was the first hour was reframing it. He said he sat he's on his bunk one night and he gets a phone call off his uh, off his cousin that says his best mate's just died. And his best mate uh, was the same age as him and he'd been basically involved in a robbery in, in Amsterdam. He'd um, been in a car accident, broke his neck and died. So he says that was the day where he looked around him and went, what the fuck have I done? I've wasted my life. My best mate's died and I'm rotting in a prison cell. So what happened was the priest in the prison came to see him and said to him, you should be grateful that you've had this guy in your life. He's he's given you lots of good qualities. He was a friend. He loved you. He cared for you. So why don't you channel that grief in some way? So he went into the prison gym. And while he was there, he started working out. And the, one of the prison officers that worked in the gym saw that he had a like a real good talent. So... He started encouraging him and nurturing him. So he was building the relationship of, you could be talented at this. I'll cut a very long story short. John ends up breaking the indoor rowing machine world record for both 100,000 metres and the longest distance ever done in 24 hours. And he then reframed his view of the world because of the relationships that the priest and the prison guard had, had sort of encouraged in him. He thought, what if I use my criminal talents to actually start to become an elite athlete? So he reframed the prison experience and decided to live as if he was an elite athlete. <laughs> when he finally got released after 15 years on parole, John has subsequently gone on to become the world's leading Ironman triathletes. Nike sponsor him and he's sort of eschewed the life of crime and now speaks about uh, the, uh, the importance of, of rehabilitating people and prisoners. So he's a really good example of those three R's of a relationship with a prison officer and the and the prison chaplain got him to see himself not as a villain, but as a decent man. 
the death of his of his best mate reframed his experience, got him to see himself as somebody that could make a difference rather than somebody that could just take from the system. And then he's just continued to repeat this over and over again. So he's a different bloke. So you start to see the importance of this, of not using the, the three Fs of fear, force, or facts, yeah. but instead build relationships, help people see the world a little bit differently, yeah, and then just keep repeating it and show them that you're serious yeah. about it. That that's, I mean, it's amazing that story, and and I, and I, I had, I, I wouldn't have placed a name, but I, I had read that story about the, about the rowing, but I'd not really thought about it before, rather than listening to you there, is the fact that. And in that environment, it's even the more polar, isn't it? So they're in an environment where fear and force is, and the facts, you are here for life. Yeah, so yeah. he he's living those three Fs all the time. And as you say, if you're going to get, and you maybe throw a four R in there, the rehabilitation, yeah. if he's going to get that, he's got to do the other way of looking at it. Um, let, one thing I wanted to move on to slightly, and it's um, it's probably, we talk about emotions, it's probably an emotional swing the other way, yeah. is the... You talk about in that bit. You talk. You also talk in your book about about fun, and um, there is a believe it or not, there's another Stuart Brown, but like you, he's far more educated than I. He's a doctor, Stuart Brown, right. uh, an American gentleman, and he and he wrote a book called Play, and it's how it shapes the brain, opens the imagination, and invigorates the soul. Oh, um, you talk about fun in there, and we see lots of. Um, in the creative sector that we represent, you see, we used to say, you know, there used to be lots of things about, you know, it used to be the pool table in the office, yeah. or et cetera, and talk about, and they talk about fun as if it's, uh, it's almost a tick in the box. But talk to me about the importance of fun in there, and, and that might be, you know, more to do with generational as well. And I know there's a lot about Gen Z gamification of activities, etc. But talk to me about what you mean by fun in that part in your book. Well, what I mean by it is that, that, that I've read a brilliant book on, uh, not about fun, but um, a, a, a book called um, Examining the Human Face. It's by a guy called Paul Ekman. And what he looks at is how, how basically <laughs> our emotions will always leak through. So a really simple example. They talk about um, like surprise. When you're surprised, evolution... Uh then plays yeah, a trick on you. So your eyes open wide <laughs> and your mouth opens yeah. when you're surprised. Yeah. And there's two things there. First one is your eyes open wide to say, take in as much of this information yeah. as you can. Your mouth opens to stop you talking. So it says, just shut up a minute and take this on board. So wow. there's lots of different ways in which our emotions are often expressed through our human expressions and evolution has granted us to this. Now, a positive emotion like fun is an evolutionary puzzle because people go, what's the point of fun? I get that surprise mm. might stop you getting eaten by a tiger or I get that fear might, might get you away from a danger source, but what does fun do? And this is where there's a psychologist called Barbara Fredrickson explored it. And what she found is what fun does is it does two things. It broadens your scope of how the world is viewed and it builds on the knowledge that you have. So when you're having a laugh, you're you're taking in more of the world. You're seeing a bigger picture, and you're building on somebody's idea. And both of those two things create i or improvement or uh, yeah. performance. So for a long time, as I say, fun has been regarded as a bit of an evolutionary puzzle. But actually, yeah. when you explore it, it broadens your perspective and it builds on your knowledge base. And that's why it's such an important factor of having a laugh. 
is when we start to learn more, when we start to associate different ideas from outside our own world. I should have, if I'd have known that, I should have learned a lot more in school when I was laughing. <laughs> <laughs> um, the bit, as I say, the bit with us with, in, in this podcast is literally about the sort of practical steps yeah. and the learnings that that our listeners and our clients can take away. So I want, I want to jump onto the P now, which is the, the practical. And that was about, so we spoke about, you know, how do we get our audience to pay attention to our ideas? That's one thing. Yeah. But then... That is not possible, I would suggest, until this part, which is how do we make our ideas clear? Because I would suggest that an, uh, uh, an audience is more likely to understand and pay attention to your idea uh, if it's clear and they can understand it. So let's talk about that. In your book, and again, I'm, I'm biased, so I always bring it back to rugby, and, and you, there's a great story in there about uh, Ian McGeekin. Yeah. And I won't go into the story, but you know it, about trust and how you can build trust. And he says there that trust isn't merely a word, it's a real behaviour that will be central to our success. And I'm a big fan on behaviours, and I always say that, you know, your culture, or you can write your values six foot high on your wall, but unless it's demonstrable in the behaviours of every member of your team every day, then it's just it's just not there. So you you mentioned we've mentioned today also about trust. So and you said about the ability to Eddie Jones either increase the trust or detract the trust. The bit that I do, I struggle with when I think this through is if we take your well, not not your but in your book the, the what's in it for me is the primitive brain part that says okay. And that might be your thing about me, so it's not research. But I'm struggling with the bit that says, so if, if, but if I've got to trust and I'm in this um, group of trust, then again, I've got to have the courage to come out of my comfort zone. Yeah. So I suppose my question there is how easy is it? If we go back to an Eddie Jones maybe moment, how easy is it to win and lose trust? Because I think lots of leaders get that. I've got it wrong in the past, Damien, and I know other people do. Yeah, so again, I really like your question here, Stuart. I think I think trust the Ian McGeek example says that everyone talks about trust, but who how actually do you demonstrate it? Yeah. What does trust look like? And I think it's a really important point um, that what you said about values can't just be there, they've got to be translated into behaviors. Because this goes back to the practicality point that our brain doesn't do abstract. So what I mean by that is that there's um, really interesting research from um, he's a child psychologist called Howard Gardner. And he's got this great line that he says, don't ask kids how clever are they? Ask them, how are they clever? And the yeah. point he makes is that everybody's clever, but we're all clever in different ways. And he's famous for a theory called the multiple intelligence theory. And what that means is that like at school, I bet you can think of the kids you were at school with. Some kids were really physically gifted. Some would have been yeah. musically gifted. Some are going yeah. to be socially gifted. Some are going to And then be... there was me. Well, <laughs> well I wasn't going to say that. Get the idea. <laughs> but, but, but what is it? So Howard Gardner says that we all have access to what he says. There are eight different types of intelligences. Now, over the years, other psychologists have said it's more yeah. than that. But the essence is that everybody is intelligent in some way. But what nobody's intelligent are is the language of abstraction. So what I mean by that is when you start saying things like, oh, we need to work on our strategy 
uh, and mm. make sure that we have a great synergy between our departments so we can execute really uh, in a streamlined way. When mm. you use words like that, they're abstract words, and the brain is going, what's strategy? What does synergy mean? What's a silo? What's streamlined? So we're, we're using abstraction, and what that tends to do is that tends to leave people feeling a little bit daft because I don't understand yeah. what it means. Or I've got a definition of it, but I'm not certain that that's the same definition mm. that you have. So you start to see the danger of what might seem really simple um, as an example, but actually creates ambiguity. And as I said mm. to you earlier, ambiguity is the enemy of high performance. Because if I'm not yep. quite sure what you're talking about, I'm not quite sure what I need to do to contribute to it. And also what you said there is I'm not thinking because I'm not I'm not thinking and therefore I'm not going to contribute because I don't understand what you're telling me. I don't understand, but I'm looking around yeah. the room and everybody else is yeah. nodding along. As they and do. And I'm thinking, yeah. oh, it must just be it's me just then. Me. So I just nod along and hope that I'll yeah. work it out as I go through it. So, I mean, I, I set up a charity. I've got a charity that's called Coats for Kids that my wife and I founded. And so if anyone's listening to this and they want to... Uh, and and they want to maybe apply for it. So the idea is that we've got in Greater Manchester over forty percent of our young yeah. people are growing up in poverty, and there's yeah. a significant proportion of those kids don't have access to a warm winter coat. So when we're asking kids to go to school and learn, how can you learn if you're cold if you're not even addressing you your basic yeah, needs? You can't. Yeah. So so schools can apply to us to uh, for to, and we will buy warm winter coats for the children that are most in need and the kids get a brand new coat. They don't know it's a charity donation, yeah, yeah. but they get some kind of a decent coat that gives them a fair chance. Yeah. And when we first started it, somebody said, well, why don't you buy electric blankets? And what was a good example? We use the phrase that we say, that's a middle-class solution to working-class problems. Is absolutely. Because these kids can't afford to plug in an electric yeah. blanket. But they, they might sleep under the coat at night if their house is cold. So what I mean by that is that often we're using abstraction. That's a simple example where it's just a misunderstanding. So the person that suggested yeah. getting electric blankets, their intention was lovely and really yes. and, and came from a, a yeah. beautiful place. But yes. It was a misunderstanding yeah. of the challenges yeah. that people face. Yeah. And I think abstract language causes the same effect where people misunderstand what you're saying because you've tried to be too clever in saying it. So so, so the the importance of practicality is Clive Woodward said it to us once when we went to his house to interview him. He said, if I've got 30 people sat in front of me and there are 29 of them are experts, I speak at the language of the novice because the other 29 will understand what I'm talking about. Get it. But I've got to make my language accessible for the for the novice in the room. And everybody else will get it. And that's what I mean by practicality, that it's just strip your language of jargon and abstraction and sort of yeah. vague phrases and talk to people in a way that is real and visceral. Yeah, there's an abstract word. But <laughs> real yeah. and really practical yeah. and accessible. Yeah, I want to come. I'm, I'm conscious that we've we, we've slightly overrun, but that's brilliant because it's 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 an amazing conversation, and 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 we can we can carry on, and 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 as I say, our listeners can dip in and dip out of when when they want it. Um, you, the bit that 
I think this sort of comes back in a loop to is this thing of stories because the stories are so we're saying look you know how how do you get our audience to pay attention to our ideas how do you get them to care about it how do you get them to act on it uh, is is the point of storytelling and there's lots of marketeers on in in this uh, listener base that will tell you about the the, the power of storytelling um but it was interesting as I was driving here today I was thinking I wonder whether that's why podcasts have become so popular because there are the podcasts that attempt to educate there are, there are a podcast that you know are just let's use the word banter um but there's the, the storytelling ones and i think you know the ones that you know i mentioned Molly, um, meatball mccann at the start of this and all the other ones that i've listened to and it's the it's the story that the person is telling and ironically some of the best episodes are not you know, it's not Eddie Jones talking about himself. It's him talking about somebody else or, you know, one, one of the ones that when I was thinking about your psychology was actually one of the first ones. I think it was one of your very first ones was Rio Ferdinand saying he now knows how they killed some young careers by really being brutal at them in the in the changing room. And That's it's, right. And it's when they're talking about, it's the story they tell, I think, that does it. And I wonder whether um, the power of storytelling, It's if we look back in history, it's that thing, isn't it, that... You know, that's how education was passed. And whether, whether it was, you know, sitting around the campfire or the concept, a lot of music. If you go back, you know, Irish culture, the storytelling's in, in the music. I just wonder whether that's one of the things that's driven this popularity of podcasts because it's not the technology. The technology existed some time ago, but podcasts have gone gone huge. Um, one uh, That was me sort of rambling, really. But um, <laughs> the, the question that I wanted to ask, because I've gone off my script slightly, was... Um, when you t- in stories and storytelling, I've often seen storytelling as a way to help visualize something. So I opened this by saying I I am uh, biased towards sporting analogies because it helps me understand something better, and I think it's easier to explain to someone and it's and it's part of resonating. But I also think it allows people to see it in their mind's eye. What's your view on visualization and mental rehearsal? Because I, I'm a big believer in that in terms of the storytelling. The best performers I see clearly don't just rehearse their words; they see themselves, and you will have seen it in a changing room. You know, see yourself making that tackle, see yourself, see yourself lifting that cup. You know, talk to me about mental rehearsal and visualization. Well, I mean, there's plenty of well, uh, plenty of like well documented research out there that says this stuff works because. What your brain your brain doesn't understand the difference between reality and imagination. So if you're imagining something in sort of glorious technical, uh, your brain just assumes it's happening as real. Yeah. So it starts to prepare you for it. It starts to give you strategies and ways of coping and things like that. So visualization works, and there's far better qualified people than me that would be happy to explain that. What I do understand about it is, Osher, there's two ways in which you can visualise. You can either visualise your world through your eyes as you see it, or you can visualise it as if you're watching yourself on telly, as if somebody else does it. Now, there's no right or wrong way to do it, but the essence is that if you see yourself through your own eyes, mm. that that's a really effective way. So if you play golf, for example, you see you, like your hand knocking the, uh, the golf club, the ball going from where you're stood into the hole. If you watch it the other way, it's like you'd be watching it on television and you'd see how your whole body looks. You'd see it as if somebody else yeah. is looking at you. And I don't, I, I don't, I, I, I think either technique works, but I think what you're doing is you're starting to write a narrative or a story yes. that your body 
then responds to as if it's happening in real time and yeah. gives you the tools to prepare for it. So I've met lots of Formula One drivers in the course of doing the podcast, and they tell you that they spend an awful lot of time in the uh, in the simulator. And a lot of that is about, so they're not on the track driving it, but they're basically starting to imprint the stories and the images yeah. in their own mind's eye so that when they face it for real, the, the brain goes, I've been here before, I'm familiar with this, therefore I feel comfortable with it. So there's plenty of examples where visualisation works, but if you're talking about it in a really practical way of running a business, I think that's where storytelling becomes almost like the equivalent of visualisation for people. You're helping people start see the world from a different perspective, from a different angle. And I think this is what, as I said to you, when I was coming away from so many of these environments and I was writing my notes, there's always the stories that came first yeah. in the notes. And then you could then translate them. So what was... What was that message? What was that key ingredient mm. that they were trying to pass on to me? And that's the way that you like you referenced it. That's where it goes back to very primitive origins of that's how when you were when we were hunting for food, cave paintings told the story. Yeah. That's where the buffalo yeah. are, that's where the food source is going to be found. So it speaks to a very much the essence of who we are as a mm. species. I always say, and I believe that about storytelling, that's why people will quote lines out of films and less people can quote lines out of books. For that reason, it's it's because they can see the the picture, the picture's there, really. Um, that's lovely, yeah. I, I, want, I want to come back to um, one last thing, really, with um, where we started with simplicity, Yeah. which is you ask a question in there that says, how do we find the essential core of our culture? Uh, so I'm really interested in your views on the role of culture because everything we've spoke about here yeah. is about the entity, the team, and and the steps that maybe the individual can take and all the things we've done. But the, the, without the, the you know with the wrong culture, because that could just be one team member, could be one leader, whatever. Everything. Give us a quick view on your, your where does culture rank in the importance of of all this mix. I, I'm biased because I work. That's what I. That's the bread and butter of the work I do, yeah. which is around helping leaders create high-performing cultures. It's the centre of it, and what I mean by that is to help people understand it. There's evidence that says that if you if you get this topic of culture right, it is your ultimate competitive advantage. Now, what's more helpful though is culture. Again, in our language of ambiguity, is the enemy. Culture is quite an abstract term. Because what does culture mean? Your definition might be different than mine. That might be different from a dozen other people. So what I find more helpful, first of all, is to clarify what type of culture do you mean? And there's some really interesting research that was done on this by two guys at Stanford University called Professors Baron and Hannon. They looked at the five most common cultures that teams have. And what they said is so you might have a star culture, which is where you've got lots of highly paid players, lots of money, lots of best facilities. You might have an autocratic culture where you've got a really powerful, charismatic leader that drives the, the team. You might have a bureaucratic culture with lots of rules and regulations and policies and procedures. You could have the fourth type is an engineering culture. And an engineering culture is where people are brought into the organization just because they've got a technical expertise, they're good at a certain skill set. 
But what, when people talk about a high-performing culture or a good culture, which I think you were alluding to, Stuart, it's the fifth type, and it's, it's what's called a commitment culture. And a commitment culture has two questions that lie at the heart of it. What's our purpose? What's our why? Yeah. And what are the behaviours that everybody has to buy into? So what are we trying to achieve and how are we going to achieve it are the two questions. And what, and what the evidence says is organisations that go after the commitment culture model by answering those two mm. questions tend to be, on average, not only sustainably more successful, but also product productively a lot more successful, on average, by about 22% more successful. And that's in things like share price, speed to market, market share, yeah, and all yeah. those factors. So the stuff we've been talking about today, about the simplicity, the getting people to think, emotional intelligence, making your language practical and telling stories, are all features of predominantly commitment cultures. So if people are thinking, how do I get that competitive advantage from my team? Those five areas that we've just discussed go take you some way towards achieving that. Where's the chicken and egg? So trust, commit. what's got to come first? Is it the trust? Does trust build commitment or have you got to commit to go to uh, Stephen Gerrard on your podcast says it's you just got to be 100% all in your question what's the definition of high performance um uh high performance and he says 100% all in yeah well think about it right so think about trust right so 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 first of all i need to be transparent i need to tell you what what i stand for then i need to be consistent i need to tell you what i stand for then i need to do it and then on the basis of those two factors Trust emerges as a consequence of it, because you've told me what I, I've told you what I stand for, and I and yeah. you see that I consistently mm. stand up for what I believe in. So therefore, you trust me when I tell you stuff. So I sometimes use this phrase here, and I don't know if this helps, but I say nobody sleepwalks their way to high performance by accident. You don't find yourself being a sustained high performer by accident and go, "How did that happen?" At some stage, you make a choice and a commitment to go after it. And when you make that choice and commitment, you're telling people what you stand for, you consistently demonstrate it, therefore people start to trust you and it starts to create and it starts to create a momentum that can work in your favor. Interesting. So if we look at if we look at the concepts of coaching, and I know that's where you've been and by the way, you know, the ping on culture is I've said it on this podcast said before, the single difference between those businesses I've been involved with that succeeded and those that either didn't or were less successful yeah. was always the culture. Yeah. Every single every single time. Um what in terms of leadership, what so you you've said you've got lots of evidence and your stories about services done and and seeing and, and go back to as you say, even even your dad observing patterns in, in rounds in a boxing match. What characteristics do you think high-performing team members have and or leaders share? Is it is it everyone has to share the same or does the team need to share one thing and the leaders share another? Um, right, that's interesting. Um, I'll tell you some common observations that I've made is I think high-performing teams, whether that you're a member or a leader of a team, humility is something that lies at the heart of it. And when I talk about humility, I, I think humility sort of, people 
give it a bad reputation this day and age because I think people assume that if I tell you I'm humble, I'm humble. No, you're not. Yeah. It, yeah. Humility isn't telling people you're down to earth. Humility is 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 the way that you view the world. And I think you can view humility in three stages. The first stage is peak idiot stage where you've got an opinion, but you've not got much knowledge. Then when you get over yourself, you enter what I call the valley of humility. And the valley of humility is you curious. You're open-minded. You ask questions. You you try and explore topics. Johnny Wilkinson told us his definition of high performance is exploration. Just just go and explore the topic. Don't have an opinion. Mm. Just go and work out what does this mean for me. And then eventually you get to the stage of what I what is referred to as the hill of knowledge. You're good at something, but you know why you're good at it. But humility lies at the heart of what it is that you're trying to do. So I think that's a common trait. I think the other one is consistency as well. And I think that, again, it's not sexy, but the ability just to show up every day and be consistent in what you do and how you behave is another trait of high-performing team members or leaders of them. So humility to be open-minded, to receive feedback, to learn from it, and then the consistency to show up and do the right thing every day. Consistency is one thing, and and you you will know because you've been there. Um, People used to think that, you know, with rugby, when it went, Europe Union went professional, it's about being paid to play. And my friends used to, who were, said, no, we get paid to practice. The performance just comes on the back of it. And it's, and it's that turning up every day and doing the things. I think in business, we, we try and get this across to people, which is there is a reason why an acquirer will ask for 36, 48, maybe up to 60 months worth of management accounts. And it's to see whether the consistency of the things that you've done stack up. Lots of people have a have a growth spurt in a business and think their business is suddenly worth a lot of money and somebody should buy it. And they get upset why the perceived competitor down the road who's not as big and, you know, not as glamorous gets gets a higher offer because it's the consistency that person's done and it's the ability to sit there and say, that's happened year in, year out. Therefore, go back to your phrase at the start, it's created a pattern that as an investor, I believe is likely to continue. This peak if they're on that, is not likely to do so. Amazing. I want to um, say something which which has made me think here specifically when you spoke about the listening and and uh, the thinking is there was um, in uh, in rugby league for those who may or may not be interested, most won't be interested when I, I wander off in my in my rugby blindness. But there was a huge issue in the game where in Australia there was the the money when it all came around between Super League and the ARL at the time. And um, there was a lot of money floating about. And Mal Riley was a famous player on both sides of, 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 of hemispheres. But at the time, he was also a Great Britain captain, a Great Britain coach, apologies. And he, he then went and took a big money job, and he was New, New, Newcastle Knights. And a lot of people were saying, you know, you're wrong. You know, you should be staying in this country. What's wrong with the British players? And he came out with an amazing quote, right. which was, Britain is full of incredibly talented players. But Australia is full of interested players. Mm-hmm. And as a coach, I want to work with the interested because I can I can make them better than the people who are already talented. And it's a little bit like some of the things that you've just been talking about. Oh, I love that. I love that. I like my I like Mal Riley. I remember reading his book years ago and I know coaches that I've worked with that speak really highly of him. But I love that. I've never heard that phrase before. 
Yeah, yeah. I'd rather it's, live it's, with someone that's curious and interested than just yeah. That, that, that's what he's trying to say. Yeah. But he, he actually he went back. It was it was a one line to the press, and he said, "Yeah, Britain." He said, "What's wrong?" He said, you know, "Britain's full of interested players." He said, "Yeah, it is, but Australia's full of interested players." So listen, as always, well, we have run over, but it's great. Uh, it's been an amazing conversation. I've wanted this conversation for a long time, and it's it's been it's been fantastic. Um, so I can only say thank you. You shared so much of your time. You shared so much of your your ob- obvious knowledge and stuff like that. So how do people find you, Damien? So if they want, you know, we're talking, I'm talking about specifically the Winning Mindset book, but you've got all your other books. In fact, the very first book I read of yours surprised me. It was um, it was How to Think Like Alex Ferguson. Right. And it was, not the, it was not the content I was expecting. It was it was a really interesting read. And that's what got me into following, following you and your oh, books. Thank but you. How do people find you? How do they get your, whether it's liquid thinking, liquid leadership, whether it's this book, what's the easiest route? Uh, the easiest route is probably go to the website liquidthinker.com um, and details are, are on there. I'm not particularly active on social media, so uh, so I'm pretty useless on that. But uh, I do the podcast, uh, the High Performance Podcast. And then the other one is uh, the charity that I run is called Coats for Four kids yeah i've i've written uh, do you know what's fun enough i wrote that down being lazy but that's exactly how i've written yeah, it down good. coats the number four kids coats four kids. Yes. uk yeah and uh, yeah. so we we're trying to make a difference there uh, to our most vulnerable children the 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 website liquid thinker is about helping teams or individuals that want to create high performing cultures and then the podcast the high performance podcast is just a yeah. free resource that we put out every yeah. week with these yeah. interviews. So they're the three main areas where I'm spending most of my time. And if people want to get in touch, they're welcome to do it there, Stu. Yeah. Well, they'd be mad not to. That's all I can say. I mean, I enjoy doing this. I only do it once a month. How you do that once a week with the intensity and the and the level of uh, guests you get anyway, that's, that's fantastic. So... We've reached the end of another show. I hope everyone's enjoyed it. Uh, I've got to obviously say thank you for listening and, and thank you for Damien. Uh, it's, as always, it's my privilege to have such fantastic guests in and you are listeners joining me today. Uh, as always, I'm Stuart and I look forward to welcoming you back into the Map Room soon. Thanks. Season two of the Map Room has been brought to you by Map, the outsourced finance function for digital agencies. Subscribe via your usual podcast app to never miss an episode.